Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, your regular discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. After one of the most turbulent political years in living memory, Westminster has thankfully taken a break over Christmas. And so have we too. Brexit is shuffling towards completion, but with not much else on the agenda, now seems a good moment to look back and take some perspective. And to do that, I'm delighted to be joined by our second special guest, James Blitt, who, as regular listeners of the podcast will know, is our Whitehall editor. He joined the FT in 1988 and has served as economics reporter, political editor, defence editor, worked abroad in Rome, Moscow. He's also been a leader writer and finally Whitehall editor, and for those eager eyes, has written the Brexit briefing email, which is a very popular FT product for the past three years. And after 28 continuous years at the organisation, Mr Blitz is moving on to new things. So now seems a good time to look back at his memories, recollections and thoughts on British politics. James, thank you for coming. Thank you very much, Seb, for having me. So let's go right back to when you joined the FT, which was not too much of a dissimilar time to our last special guest, Lionel Barber. He joined in the middle of the Thatcher years. You came in towards the end of that period there. What are your memories of that time politically? Well, I think when I first came to the paper in the late 1980s, the overwhelming focus of attention was on the collapse of the Soviet Union, in fact. In British politics, I do remember the resignation of Nigel Lawson. I remember that was one of my first experiences on the FT, and I remember the shock on the day that Nigel Lawson resigned. It was a totally unexpected event. Lawson was a very considerable figure. He'd been Chancellor for quite a number of years. I always remember the economics editor, Peter Norman, arriving. He'd been away for the day, and I think he arrived late in the afternoon in Wimbledon in the office, and Jeff Owen, the editor, was telling him what kind of piece we wanted to have on Nigel Lawson. I always remember that as a very exciting day. But that was the end of the Thatcher years. I then went to Moscow for the Sunday Times for a while, and when I came back in the early 90s, I then went on to write about currencies on the economic desk. And that was my first really big reporting job on the FT because that was at the time of Black Wednesday. And that was another absolutely gripping moment. Yes, talk us through that moment, because obviously, for many people, that early 90s era set out very much where we are today in terms of debates about Britain and Europe, Britain's relationship with the European Union as well. Black Wednesday shattered the Conservatives' reputation for economic confidence, but it's also widely been seen as a moment that ushered in many years of steady growth and in some way had a cathartic effect on the British economy. Well, I think that Black Wednesday, 16th of September 1992, did a spectacular amount of damage to the Tories' reputation for economic competence and good management. And frankly, it took them around 18 years to recover from it. Looking back, of course, the 2008 financial crisis was a vastly more significant event. But I don't think I can remember an event in my lifetime where people 
woke up and were absolutely stunned to find interest rates that I think suddenly pushed up to around 15%. An enormous number of people with mortgages were basically bankrupt at that moment. And of course, at the end of that day, Norman Lamont announced that our membership of the ERM was suspended and all was over and all the rest of it. But I think the shock of that is something from which the Conservatives never recovered. And I have always in the last year or two thought that any Conservative politician with any memory of that would think very, very hard about the idea of taking the British into a no-deal Brexit, which is, of course, still a possibility at the end of 2020, because people will not forgive a government that takes them through any kind of economic shock of a major nature. But of course, when you compare it today, one of the amazing things was that Black Wednesday was not something that the government could control or do. It was a fact when we joined the ERM that that was enforced. Some, of course, predicted that this might happen. But if we do end up having a break with the EU at the end of December 2020, then that is the sort of thing that would have been self-inflicted in a way, which when you compare the parallels, it's a very different attitude the Conservatives now have towards the economy to in the early 90s. But I think the bottom line of what I'm saying is that if the public finds itself in a mess or an economic crisis, it's not going to turn around and say, oh, well, there were good reasons why Boris took us into this, the EU has been very difficult and all the rest of it. It'll blame the people who are in charge. As I've said, I think once on the podcasts in February 1974, Ted Heath went to the country and said, We've got to have a debate about who governs. The miners have brought this government and this country to its knees. You've got to bring me back and put me in a strong position. And the country just looked at Heath and said, we're a complete mess. You're the person in charge. You're the one who's got to get out. Now, just to take a slide to off British politics for a moment, serving in Moscow for the Sunday Times at that period has been absolutely fascinating watching the collapse of the Soviet Union and Russia try and emerge into the country that it is today. When you look back on that period, you know, there was the very famous quote about 1989 marking the end of history there. There's been a lot written on the anniversary of that. Do you agree with the thesis that the West celebrated too quickly at having won the moral victory of capitalism over communism? Well, yes, of course it did. There's no question about that. I mean, there was this elation at the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, which I remember very well indeed. And also, I suppose there was rightful elation that, in fact, the whole period of Soviet power came to an end relatively peacefully, with the sole exception of the awful events in Romania at the end of 1989, where there was actually quite a lot of violence. But there was, of course, an extraordinary sense of elation. And I sort of marveled that Gorbachev, a Soviet leader, had really brought about the end of the Soviet Union. It's not, of course, what he wanted, but nonetheless, it had all come to an end without any kind of revenge or violence or all the rest of it. So in that sense, there was bound to be a very positive feeling. But of course, one of the fundamental problems was that people thought that the Soviet Union could somehow transfer from being the kind of autocratic state it was into something akin to free market capitalism in a very easy way. And of course, that didn't happen. I remember thinking very strongly at the time, the Chinese had basically gone about things the right way in the sense that they had maintained a very strong political authority over the country, but had pushed through economic reform. Gorbachev had done the exact opposite. He pushed through political reform but in a country which was still really economically suffering enormously. And I think that that was the problem. 
And when you returned to Britain, we were knee deep into the rise of New Labour now. And you served as political editor of the FT through the beginning of the Blairs. What a period that now looks in retrospect. It's one of my first political memories, I have to say, the 1997 general election. How was it being political editor? Because at that point, of course, you had the first rise of spin in a big, big way with Alistair Campbell. And that is something that has obviously been much scrutinised, particularly today, as Boris Johnson's Downing Street are also criticised for many of the things Tony Blair's Downing Street was. How was it day to day at that time? Well, I think the thing one wants to say is that, and it's quite relevant to what's happening now in British politics, is that when you've got a situation of minority government or hung parliaments or a government with a very small majority, as John Major did in the mid-1990s, then it's something of a field day for journalists because number 10 is not really strongly in power and you can go around the lobby of the House of Commons and you speak to different people and as a journalist you actually are in a position of control because you can see the different factions playing themselves off. The situation we're now moving into in the UK is actually quite similar in some ways to what you had in the Blair period, which is a government with a very strong majority. Obviously, Johnson doesn't have one as big as the majority that Tony Blair had in 97 and 2001. But even so, we're moving into a situation where the government is in control. And so the stories in politics become much more difficult to get at because you're basically trying to find fissures and differences between people in cabinet or people actually even just within the Downing Street machine. Now, in the Blair case, obviously, the central story, the fulcrum for me when I was covering the second half of the Blair period was the difference between himself and Gordon Brown. The whole story in British politics was about the Blair-Brown difference. It was often described as being something like a medieval court in which you were having to find different people saying different things in quiet corners, one about the other. Now, I don't know whether we're moving back to that. There isn't really somebody in the Boris Johnson entourage who is that kind of counterpoint to the Prime Minister in the way that Brown was to Blair. But I certainly think political journalism is about to move back into this rather arcane and difficult world where... You have to find out behind the scenes what's actually going on. Because when you go back to that period, obviously the FT being a financial newspaper would be most interested in the Treasury. And the Treasury under Gordon Brown was an incredibly powerful organisation. You know, had control over all matters of domestic policy. Whilst you had Tony Blair bestriding the world stage, increasingly so when we came towards the Iraq war there. A lot of people blamed the TBGBs, as they were known at the time, for what later came with Labour with Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn. Is that fair, do you think? I think if I had to take a slightly more sweeping view of that period, I would just say this. Tony Blair came to office in May 1997, and there was an extraordinary sense of elation and emotion across the country at that moment. He had a quite remarkable victory. The scenes in the streets around Downing Street on that May morning were quite incredible. I don't think any prime minister has ever managed to recreate that. I mean, what you see around Johnson is nothing compared to that. And I think for me, one of the big themes of British politics in the last 20 years has been that after all that promise and hope, the British became tremendously disillusioned by what happened over the Iraq war almost traumatised by it. I've always thought that there was almost a counterpoint of two key points in that period. One of them was the arrival of Blair. And I always thought at the end of the Blair period, the way in which people used to file along the streets in that town called Wooten Bassett, 
when the bodies of British soldiers came back from Afghanistan and Iraq was a very traumatic moment. And I think a lot of the disillusion that people have with politics, with Westminster, and a lot of the emotion that was created about Brexit, about pushing Brexit through, has its roots in a deep mistrust that was created around that time. Blair had so much promise. As a journalist, I, I think Blair had to take a decision on Iraq. I think so much of the vilification of Blair has gone well beyond what was needed. But even so, the reality is huge disillusion with that period. Because, of course, one of the moments that defined that period was the 9-11 terror attacks. And that changed everything. It changed how Blair saw the world and his relationship with George W. Bush. When we look back at how that was done and how that was reported as well, there was so much about how Number 10 tried to sell the Iraq war to the country. And I can imagine that was a pretty difficult time to be a political journalist. How out of sorts, with hindsight, do you think Downing Street was in the way that it acted over the Iraq war with regards to the media? Look, if I'm honest, sir, something I've never done is to actually go through the cuttings book of the pieces I wrote as political editor around in 2002 and 2003 and look back and ask myself, how much did I actually question what was being said to me at the time? I must be honest, I find that very troubling. It left a bit of a mark, really. As I say, I think Blair had to take a decision, but I sort of feel as there is a real tension in political journalism because on the one hand, Newspapers want their political journalists to be first with the story, be ahead of everybody else. And that means you've got to get very, very close indeed to the spin doctors, the people around, the prime minister, the, the special advisors. Special advisors, particularly special advisors, have huge weight. And so you've got to get really close to them. And a lot of the value sometimes in stories is throwing a light on what's been going on inside the system. But on the other hand, as a journalist, especially on a paper like the FT with the highest of standards, I felt the paper also wants me to be really objective and critical and stand back and not be part of this. And I find that tension. It's not easy. Certainly in the period covering Gordon Brown, I found that quite hard because on the one hand, one has to be ahead with what the Treasury wants to do. But on the other hand, You've got to be around the Chancellor and his people. It's not easy. And we find that still the case today in our reporting, particularly when you have leaders and characters who are very tribal in the way they operate. And of course, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair were the definition of being tribal. You know, you had Tony's people and Gordon's people in the cabinet, in parliament, in special advisors, and I guess probably in journalists too as well. They, people do criticise, as they say now, about Boris Johnson's Downing Street, as I'm sure they said about Tony Blair's Downing Street, that some people are too close to them and just take the line and don't question it. But on the other hand, how are you supposed to know? know what's going on. Unless you're close to those people, you can't be a political journalist in a vacuum. I agree with you. It's very, very difficult. I've got to be honest, one of the things I have most enjoyed in recent years, writing the Brexit briefing that I do, which is a kind of attempt to analyse what's going on, is I've actually tried not to speak too much to politicians and people in government. I mean, I think that Brexit is the most overreported subject of my lifetime. There has been over the last three years an enormous amount of it. An enormous amount of what's going on is in the public domain. And actually, sometimes it's actually much more comfortable to just stand back, read all this stuff and try and make some kind of judgment on it. But I suppose in something like a blog, you're not under pressure to break news. Now, after you moved on from being political editor, you served as the FT's defence and diplomatic correspondent as well. How did you find moving over to defence from political journalism? How was it different? 
It is different. There's obviously a kind of political journalist lobby. There's also a kind of defence reporters lobby, but it's not aggressive and high octane as the lobby at Westminster. First of all, it's something that Lionel said, and I think it's absolutely true. I think the people who are at the top of the UK military and the top of the security services are really some of the most high-caliber people you are ever going to meet in this country as a journalist. They really are heads of the Army, Navy, Air Force, the heads of the security services, MI5 and MI6, GCHQ. These are top-notch people, and these are areas in which the UK, whatever the difficulties over Iraq and Afghanistan, is operating at globally at a very, very high level. When I did the job, the major issue was the SDSR, the Security and Defence Review of 2010, which was a huge strategic decision, which we're still living in the shadow of, which was basically to have a range of major platforms like two aircraft carriers buying the F-35 jets from the US and then downsizing the army. And there was a lot of infighting between the military chiefs. There's still a lot of infighting that goes on. The difference, I suppose, then from now is that we were still doing major operations there in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I travelled there, which is always a daunting experience for any person, especially in Afghanistan in Helmand. I went there in 2011 and 12. Things were pretty tough there for UK forces. Now we've moved to a situation where the British are doing much less operationally, frankly, and a lot more is about how you reconfigure defence for the modern world. And I think this is a question, obviously, facing the Johnson government as well, because as ever, the Ministry of Defence and all the armed services always want more money. They always want more kit. And you're always facing the constraints of public spending. As we report in the FT from our current defence correspondent, Helen Warrell, the army and defences are really struggling for cash at the moment. There's going to be another defence review. It might not be on the same scale as the SDSR of 2010, but we'll look at, across the piece, what we can do, because there's obviously this push probably from the centre of government as we leave the EU to maintain our position as one of Europe's dominant military and strategic powers, that we will have to spend more money to do that to remain influential when you're outside the bloc. How do you see all that panning out? There's always pressure on spending for the military. The key problem for the British is they've taken a very, very big set of decisions in terms of having aircraft carriers and spending on the Navy and the Air Force. And it's the Army which is really feeling that it's been at the receiving end of a lot of the cuts. I mean, the size of the Army has been significantly reduced over the last eight or nine years. I don't think, though that it's in defence spending that the real problems are going to arise. I think the real tensions are going to be more in areas of foreign policy, where I still think the big problem, especially if Trump is re-elected in 2020, is that the US and UK on quite a number of areas have really very different visions. We're very, very different from the Trump administration on the question of Iran. The British were huge players in making sure that the Iran nuclear deal was finally signed in 2015 as part of the E3 plus 3. I covered that pretty closely and Britain played a very important role there and has a very good knowledge of the whole of the Iranian nuclear program and all of that. I think on Middle East politics, on Israel-Palestine, again, the US has moved its embassy to Jerusalem. The British take a much more balanced view, really, of the situation between Israel and the Palestinian territories. And I think on climate change as well, the British have been very, very strong players over the last 10 or 20 years on climate change policy. And the Trump administration is taking a very, very different view. And I think it's there that the tensions exist. In terms of defence spending, yeah, we've got a government that seems to be able to find money everywhere. So I'm not sure it's necessarily going to be a problem. 
And that hopefully brings us to what you've spent your last couple of years doing, which has been Brexit non-stop. Covering from the referendum period until where we are now in terms of how Whitehall has reacted and adapted to Brexit, we're on the cusp of possibly a big Whitehall reorganisation, which I think every government at some point attempts to do with varying degrees of success of opening, closing, merging, renaming departments. As we are about to leave the EU, how much institutional change do you think there will fundamentally be? In Whitehall, it's very, very hard to know. I mean, clearly... There are lots of plans, aren't there? Um, Johnson wants to fold DFID into the Foreign Office. They want to create a whole new base structure with DIT, the Department of International Trade, folding into that. Sure, there's going to be lots of change. Every time I speak to the Institute for Government, who are an outstanding think tank on all this, one gets the view that governments can spend an awful lot of time moving the deck chairs around, and actually you can waste a lot of time doing it. The key issue is obviously what is going to happen on the overall Brexit negotiation. The reality, I'm afraid, for the British public is that having voted to give Boris Johnson a majority on the principle get Brexit done, they're going to find after January the 31st that Brexit isn't done, that we enter another nine months in which it's really uncertain whether we can get the kind of free trade agreement that Johnson wants, whether we're going to fall off the cliff edge at the end of December 2020, etc., etc. And... For investors particularly, there was this huge elation when Johnson got his majority and the FTSE 100, the FTSE 250, sterling all went up. But it actually started to all come down again in the days afterwards because people suddenly cottoned on to the fact that actually this thing is still rumbling on and will go rumbling on. I mean, my overall view on the next few years is that A huge amount of effort is going to go now in the Johnson government into domestic economic issues and in particular pouring loads of cash into infrastructure for the north of England, £10 billion for north of England, £100 billion overall infrastructure spending for the economy and lots more money for the NHS and all the rest of it. But in the end, the question is whether the economic decision over Brexit is somehow going to dampen all that and make that a good deal more difficult. And that's the bit one's unsure about. Well, that's really the topic of 2020, because it seems very likely now we are leaving at the end of January and focus will move on to that future trade relationship, which Boris Johnson has said can be conducted and put forward and finished within 12 months. But as you think most trade experts would say, that's a very optimistic timetable and will probably mean a very loose, basic trade deal, not the kind of deep, comprehensive agreement Theresa May was looking for when she was Prime Minister. And this is where the political calculation for the Prime Minister comes in. Does he stick to his timetable and go for a very quick, straightforward deal, which risks that dampening effect you talked about? Or does he take a bit more time and try to get something that's deeper with the EU that protects trade and protects the economy as well? And I guess one of the things that is being continued throughout the Brexit process is this question of choices. Nobody is still really talking about yet making the hard choices ahead about what Brexit is going to mean and look like. I very much agree with that. I mean, the one thing I would put money on is that Britain is going to end the transition period in a kind of no-deal type scenario at the end of 2020. I just don't see why Johnson would take the risk of all the economic upheaval that would happen if we left in that kind of way. I mean, I think however much over the last three and a half years, Theresa May and to some degree Johnson have said no deal is better than a bad deal, 
when they looked at the issue head on, they never went for it. And I don't think he'll go for it. So ultimately, as you say, the question is, does he go for a thin FTA, which basically does as good a deal he possibly can on goods and leave all the other stuff on services until another day? Or does he actually turn around to the Commons and actually say, well, in actual fact, we need a bit more time and I need to pass some legislation to extend the extension? I mean, extending the extension isn't easy, though, because it means pouring more money into the EU budget and all the rest of it. The aspect of it we don't know enough about is what the nature of the backbench Tory MPs is who have Mm. come into the Commons, whether they are going to really press for something really hard with the EU or whether they actually would be open to any kind of vault fast that Johnson does on that. That seems to me to be a bit of the unknown. And I think it is very hard to say what that is going to be because these MPs, you know, some of them are paper candidates that Conservative Central Office didn't think were necessarily going to win this election. They did. And then that always produces some interesting characters, as you remember from the early Blair years with people who no one thought was going to win and they did. I think the one theme that I've picked up from the new intake of Tory MPs is, first of all, they're incredibly loyal to Boris Johnson. Some of them are Remainers who have now accepted that Brexit is going to happen and we need to sort of muddle on and make the best of it. A lot more of them are passionate Brexiters. For example, Jory Morrissey, who replaced Dominic Grieven Beaconsfield in this election, was spotted as a newly signed member of the ERG and was there at the first meeting of the ERG, which actually didn't look a huge amount bigger than it did in the last parliament. But I think what's going to matter most to those people is the domestic policy stuff. And where it will come to is if the argument is made by people that a quick trade deal will mean less cash and less growth for domestic issues, that could be a powerful argument. Yep, it could well be. We will have to see what happens on that. It'll be fascinating as well to see how the Europeans take on Boris Johnson in this phase. I was having an interesting conversation um, the other day with Antonella Guerrera, the correspondent of La Repubblica, whom you know I know well. And he was saying something quite interesting, which is that, you know, for a long period of time, all the countries in the EU have been looking at Brexit and saying, God, what a mess. We don't want to copy this at all. It's all absolutely ridiculous. And it's been one of the key themes of the last three and a half years. The chaos. No EU state has come remotely near to doing Frexit, Ital Exit, or all the rest of it. They've looked at it and just thought we don't want to go there. But it's interesting that after Johnson's election on December the 12th, he was saying in the Italian political context, suddenly people are starting to say, well, you know, Johnson is quite a compelling figure. He has a strong majority. He's clearly understood the mood of his country. And if in the next year he does manage to start to push through some serious economic change domestically and at the same time get somewhere with an orderly end to the transition period, it will be interesting to see whether, in fact, a more Eurosceptic, an even more Eurosceptic mood starts to develop in countries like Italy. I mean, that is one of the interesting things to watch. Johnson has actually, to some degree, changed the narrative about Brexit as far as European countries are concerned, I can already hear in my ear a certain colleagues saying to me, the Europeans are paying no attention to Britain anymore. They're not paying any attention to Brexit. But I'm not so sure. I think it'll be quite interesting what the impact is there. And finally, what do you make of Boris Johnson as a character as well? You've been a journalist from the time that he was a journalist and MP and Mayor of London and all the rest of it. And he's just won this thumping majority that nobody, not even his own team, expected to win that big. And And I think it was Francis Pym who said in 1983 that landslide victories do not produce good governments and was promptly sacked by Margaret Thatcher for saying that when she won the 83 landslide. But how do you see him developing as a prime minister over the next couple of years? 
It's really hard to say. I first saw Boris Johnson as a student at the Oxford Union in autumn 1984, when he first arrived as an undergraduate and I was a postgraduate, a rather serious postgraduate at St. Anthony's College. And I remember thinking about him to some degree, what I think about him today. First of all, the act that he has, the slightly disheveled hand in his blonde hair, this slightly P.G. Woodhouse way of talking he has, it was all very well formed at that stage. He hasn't actually fundamentally changed the act. It's the same one. And he's certainly a man of great intelligence. But it's really hard to know how things are going to develop for him over the next few years. One thing I do think about him is that he's fundamentally a newspaper columnist. If you look at his public performance, he writes out a speech like an article and he then declaims it and he enjoys declaring it. That is his operating style. He's very poor indeed as an off-the-cuff performer. At this level, it's quite unusual to see somebody who's quite as bad at that. For example, when in the House of Commons, there was that backbench Labour MP who directly said to him that she was being vilified by people in the street because of her stance on Brexit and some of the things he had been saying. He described that as humbug. Do you remember that? I do. That was a terrible way to deal with that. And then that awful experience he had with the boy who was lying in the corridor at Leeds General Hospital when that ITV reporter showed him the photograph. His response to that was very poor indeed. I watched the video of it several times because he really dries up. And I think that's going to be an issue for him because ultimately you do have to do quite a lot of spontaneous public performance as Prime Minister. In the end, he's created the crisis we're in because he backed leave in 2016, but he has understood the mood of the country in terms of what has happened over the last three and a half years. So we will just have to see. I've no idea. It's the remarkable thing about the Get Brexit Done slogan of people saying, well, you're the one who wanted this thing in the first place. Why are you trying to rush and just get this thing over the line very quickly? But as you said, the British public seemed to sort of agree with his sentiment in the election campaign. Yeah, he's got a tremendous opportunity. He has taken the Conservatives to their first substantial victory since... 1987. I think one Since of the you things, started working at the FD, yeah, I know. in fact. I think one of the really interesting things about him, looking back, and I wrote a piece about it, and I think it gave me a really strong sense of him. As one of his aides says, he took three critical decisions in his career which have got him to where he is. The first decision was in about 2006, 7, 8, to run for mayor of London. And that was a very important decision because Cameron and Osborne were coming into power and he needed to do something very different to establish his profile and his political base. And that was a very important decision. The second decision was obviously the big decision in February 2016, which was to go for leave, which effectively decided the outcome of the European referendum and then gave him the upper hand because he had brought about a major change and then was the downfall of Cameron. And then the third decision was in 2018 to resign over Chequers. He was foreign secretary. He was part of the May entourage. But at that critical moment, admittedly, he took a while to take the decision. He watched David Davis do it first, but he resigned. And that was crucial because then as the May premiership descended into chaos, he was able to be someone on the outside and present himself as an alternative leader. I think that description by his aide is absolutely right. I think he is somebody who has for himself taken eventually critical political decisions and that have gone to where he is now. But whether he has a deep and sincere understanding of where he wants to take the country 
That I'm not so sure about. Well, we will certainly find out in the months to come. James, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sitting down for a little chat with us over Christmas. You're going to be deeply missed by everyone at the FT as a colleague, but also our readers as well, who will very much miss your email and your reporting. And the very best of luck for the future. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All the best. And we'll be back next week with another episode of FT Politics, back to the normal political agenda. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer ft politics was presented by me sebastian payne and produced by anna Deda. until next time thanks for listening Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.